This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's a privilege to be with you here again at GYC, especially here in Arizona, where I spent three years of my life and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the Sonoran Desert, especially in the springtime when it bloomed. This last week, I'm not so sure I enjoyed it as much. We were up at the Grand Canyon. It was 27 degrees. I hadn't prepared for that in Arizona, so uh, there was snow on the ground. I spent Christmas in Michigan and Marion Springs, and there was no snow. It was 50 degrees, so I don't know. Something's happening in the climate, I think. Let's bow our heads for prayer before we begin today. Our Heavenly Father, today we want to be instructed by the living Word of God. During the Sabbath school time, as we cover the topic of interpreting the Bible in the world we live in today, as we look at the Bible, Christ, and culture, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present in this room and present in every room where the television is turned on as people are watching. We thank you that we serve a spirit that guides us into all truth. And we pray for that spirit to be active right now. In Jesus' name, amen. It was my second year in college. I was 20 years old and I had decided to go overseas to experience a dream that I had to study in Europe for a year, learning the language that I had grown up with as a boy. Bogenhofen was a small school in Austria. There are no kangaroos in Austria, it's Europe. And uh, we had a great experience there those first months as I was studying and learning and it was a wonderful small school environment coming from a large university, Adventist University, to a school of about 150 students. It was a family. One thing I didn't enjoy very much and that was the cold. It was one of those wet fall experiences where you basically have this constant drizzle and rain and this kind of wet cold that penetrates no matter what kind of clothing you're wearing down to the very bone. And I remember I could count maybe on two hands how many days of sunshine I had seen that particular fall. And now it was November and one day while I was in the dining room, my father called and I went to the phone and after some small talk, he said, you know, Michael, he says, your mother and I have been talking and We're going down to Florida again this year, down to Key Largo for our vacation time. We do have done this every year for many years, and we were wondering if you want to join us. The relatives are all going to be there together. There's going to be about 40 of us camping on the Gulf of Mexico, and you know how it is. And I looked outside, and it was drizzling again. I thought about those blue azure waters. I thought about my cousins and I windsurfing across the Gulf of Mexico. I thought of our scuba diving ventures in Pennacamp State Park. I thought about all of the things that we did, even Santa Claus coming on the back of a pickup truck on the beach. I thought of beach volleyball. I thought of the things we did when we were there at the beach during our Christmas holidays for two weeks. And my dad said, look, um, I want you to make the decision. And I explained to my father that I was actually planning on staying in Europe that year. I was planning on spending the Christmas time with my uncle Kurt, who was a pastor in Germany, and my cousin Bettina, who was a student with me at Bogenhofen. And my dad said, well, there's no pressure. It's your decision. You're an adult now. You need to make these decisions on your own. But what I will do, I will go to the travel agent this morning. I will look at possible flights because it's very late in this discussion. And I will call you back in three hours. And when I call you back, you need to have made a decision because we need to act on this right away. I remember after lunch going to Bettina's room, my cousin's room. I had permission from the girls' dean to go there because I was her cousin. And um, I told her about the phone call and I said, you know, I don't know what to do. I mean, we had these plans to go to your house and, and now... I don't know. Uh, it's a simple decision whether to go home or whether to stay here for Christmas. And 
Bettina caught me off guard. She says, Michael, have you prayed about it? I felt a little guilty because I was a theology student second year and she was a high school student and I hadn't thought about praying about it. So I said, no, I, I haven't done that yet. <clears throat> she says, well, maybe we should do it right now. And I said, sure. And so we knelt down in that dorm room, her and her roommate Katrina, kind of strange, Bettina and Katrina, but anyway. And I, we knelt down in that dorm room and we prayed over what seemed like a very simple decision. The plan that afternoon was to take them into town in my car. I was kind of the taxi of the school because I had a car. And they wanted to do some shopping, so we went into the city of Braunau in Austria. And as they shopped, I wandered the streets. I went to my favorite sports store where all the latest skiing equipment was available, and, but I didn't look at the skis. I kept thinking about that phone call at 3 o'clock. I kept thinking about what I was going to say. I kept thinking about all the things that I would have to deal with when that call came. And I kept praying all afternoon and asking the Lord for guidance. And I can tell you something, it didn't work the way it sometimes works. I didn't have any handwriting appear on one of the store front windows. There was no lightning flash that came out of the sky that told me or showed me which way to go. There was no clear voice that said, this is what you should do. But I can tell you this, as I continued to pray every time I thought about going home for Christmas, that is back to the United States and to Florida, I felt uneasy. And every time I thought about staying, I felt a certain peace in my heart. And as the afternoon continued, those feelings, that, that sense strengthened on both sides. And so 15 minutes before the phone call, I made up my mind that I was going to stay. The phone rang, my father was on the phone, and he says, Michael, I'm so excited. I just got back from the travel agency from Ruth, and, 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 and we found a flight. It's going to go from Frankfurt to London, London to New York, New York to Miami. We'll pick you up in Miami. Two hours, you'll be down on Key Largo, a beautiful island south of Florida. And you know what, he says? Even your grandmother is coming this year. She's never been to Florida before. Oh, by the way, what was your decision? I looked out the window and it was drizzling again. My resolve was fading fast. There was silence on the phone and then my dad said, oh, by the way, your mother and I made a decision. We're paying for the flight. You don't have to worry about a thing. Whew. I said, dad, I've been praying about it all day. I don't know how to explain this to you, but I really feel like I should stay. There was silence on the phone again. Your mother will be very disappointed. I know. Well, listen, the booking will hold for 72 hours. I, I didn't purchase anything. It will hold for 72 hours. If you change your mind, call me back and we'll buy the ticket. But it's your decision. Hung up the phone. I didn't call him back. Two weeks later, the rain had turned to snow and we were in a winter wonderland. Driving through Bavaria up into Germany, where my uncle was a pastor, it was beautiful. Snow-laden trees, it just felt like Christmas was supposed to feel in Germany. I'd only spent one Christmas before in Germany when I was a child in the Black Forest with my grandparents. And so I was really looking forward to this. Christmas trees in Germany are not like Christmas trees here. They're real. <laughs> and the lights on the Christmas tree are not the kind you buy at Walmart. They're real candles with real fire on them. I don't know what firemen do there but, but uh, at Christmas Eve, but that's what they do. The Christmas trees don't go up. They don't go up uh, in August. They go up in, on Christmas Eve when the Christ child comes, as tradition has it in that part of the world, when the Christ child comes and brings everything. So I was looking forward to this special time and sure enough, the tree was there, the meal was there. We were soon around the tree and exchanging gifts when the telephone rang. My father was on the phone and he said, Michael, 
You need to talk to someone. And I think that was probably the most expensive phone call that my father had ever had, or I had ever had. I think I talked to all 40 relatives in those few minutes. Maybe it was an hour, I can't remember. That was, by the way, when a phone call overseas was $4 a minute. Probably was the same price as my ticket would have been. <clears throat> Finally, my dad got back on the phone and he said these words. He says, Michael, I'm so glad you didn't come this year. I'm sorry, Dad, you, you don't miss me? <laughs> no, Michael, he says, it's not that. I had you booked on Pan Am Flight 103 that crashed in Lockerbie, Scotland last week. My mind went back to the drive from Bogenhofen to Germany, the newscasts that came over the radio as we were driving up. 747 had taken off from London Heathrow, and while it was still ascending to its cruising altitude, something happened. It had blown up. 189 people on board had been killed. People in the city of Lockerbie that the plane crashed into, a few of them had been killed as well. Everyone on board was lost. The tree blurred in front of me the lights blurred in front of me. I simply handed the phone to my uncle as the impact of that moment began to settle in. And the next few months as I wrestled with huge questions, I can tell you that I don't have all the answers still today to those questions, but as I kept thinking back on that afternoon, between 12 and 3 when I was praying about a simple decision to go home or not, my mind kept going back again and again to the three of us kneeling in that dormitory room at Bogenhofen and asking the Lord for direction. It was a crisis in my life unlike I had ever faced. The disciples, as Jesus hung on the cross, must have faced a similar identity crisis. It was a moment that the entire universe was witnessing. The entire universe, the created worlds, were focused on that moment in history as the Son of God hung suspended between heaven and earth. The mystery of unbridled love was being poured out on a broken and fallen and undeserving race. Scripture had predicted this day again and again from the first verses of the book of Genesis in Genesis 3.15 when the promise was given to Adam and Eve all the way down through the prophets of the Old Testament. With detail and with precision, this moment was predicted through the sacrificial system as lambs were brought into the, heavenly, into the sanctuary. This moment was crystallized in the mind of Hebrews and people who had studied it for centuries. The moment had finally come in the fullness of time. Nearly 2,000 years have passed from that, since that moment of crisis and triumph, and today we are entering into that time in history when the fullness of time has come again, Jesus is coming soon. What happened at the cross was a prelude to the ultimate triumph of what would happen at the end of time. The time is fast approaching is even at the door when Jesus will return victorious in the clouds of heaven to take us home. And we are certainly living once again in the fullness of time. The appending crisis at this time in earth's history our time will be unprecedented. The pressures upon God's people will be focused and relentless and deliberate. How will we be able to stand faithful during this time? How will the Seventh-day Adventist Church that has been given a unique and distinct three angels message be able to proclaim that message faithfully through the vicissitudes of theological controversies and discussions through all of the things and challenges that will arise from within and from without, how will we be able to move forward to meet Jesus when He comes?
This morning, during this study time together, I want to focus on two episodes in Christ's life that we might understand how he faced two of the most critical moments, crisis moments, identity moments in his time here on earth. We have learned so much already in this conference, and it's been a blessing, hasn't it? The first is found in Luke chapter 4. I invite you to turn there. We find the temptation of Jesus referred to several times in the Gospels. But here in Luke, at the very beginning of his ministry, after his baptism in the Jordan River, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and nights. We're told in the spirit of prophecy that this was a time of, of soul searching and prayer and communion with his father, a time when he knew after his baptism that his ministry was about to begin and Jesus needed to focus on those things that mattered most. Forty days and nights, no food, no water, Jesus spent in that wilderness. I've been in that wilderness. I've been in that desolation. It's more desolate than the Sonoran Desert here in Arizona. There he walked and knelt and prayed. And after those 40 days and nights, when he was at his weakest moment, Satan approaches him with three temptations. They cover every temptation that you and I will ever face. The first temptation was appetite. Jesus responds and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The passage which Jesus is quoting from is Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 and it continues, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus points back to the living word and in his second temptation when Satan comes now with his own quote from scripture, Christ is offered dominion of the world's kingdoms and glory and worldly honor. Jesus responds, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The end time crisis will be a crisis of worship, who we worship, when we worship, and yes, even how we worship. Christ reminds us that true worship is focused on God, not on anyone else. Finally, during Satan's last temptation for the love of display, Jesus responds, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. With each statement, Jesus responds with scripture, it is written. Notice Jesus did not say it was written. He did not say it will be written. He did not say, on my authority I say to you. No, instead he uses the present tense because you see the word of God is the living word of God. It was not spoken for some distant culture, some distant group of Israelites coming out of bondage from Egypt in the past. It was not meant only for future generations. No, it is the living word of God and it is authoritative for every generation. It is present truth for Moses and it is present truth for Christ and it is present truth for us today. The Bible and the Bible only was Christ's method of defense against the most vicious attacks from the adversary. Jesus was God, but his defense, in his defense, he submitted to the Word of God. It was not opinion. It was not an elaborate, convoluted argument. It was not with words of personal animosity. It was with the simple, declarative words of Scripture. For Christ, Scripture had the greatest authority, the greatest power, when he was powerless. Over the centuries of Christian history, the same power of the Word of God has sparked the greatest reformations and revivals the world has ever known. The greatest Protestant Reformation came as the result of the Bible being translated by Wycliffe and Luther and others into the language of the peoples of Europe. The writings influenced Huss and Jerome and Bohemia. For the first time, kings and princes, commoners and children could read the Word of God. They could read for themselves the truths of righteousness by faith. The Bible, which had been hidden and suppressed for centuries, provided an incredible new light that penetrated the dark ages. Three distinct principles of biblical interpretation came out of that intense Bible study 
as these people for the first time again wrestled with the Word of God. The first one was sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Catholicism had long upheld her traditions and teachings of the church beside the Bible, and with time, they superseded the Bible. The Protestant Reformation called people back to the Bible. The Bible alone was to decide matters of life and faith. The Bible is the inspired Word of God called for a people to be obedient to the law of God. Paul writes, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for corrections, for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. The second principle that the Protestant Reformation came up with and should still be practiced by us today is that Scripture is its own interpreter. Not every person is his own interpreter. The Bible is to be interpreted from within itself. The Old and New Testaments shed light on each other, fulfill one another. One biblical passage helps unlock another biblical passage. The biblical writers themselves employed this method again and again throughout Scripture. Daniel studies his contemporary Jeremiah who is back in Jerusalem and based on his writings discovers that the close of that time of exile, that 70-year period is coming to an end. And he prays to God for himself and for his people in reformation and repentance. Paul makes biblical arguments based on quotations and direct references to the first chapters of Genesis and many other books in the Bible. Peter, in this theme text for GYC, this year, refers back to Isaiah and the prophecy concerning the Messiah and sees that fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. One inspired writer after another under the guidance of the same Holy Spirit provides clarity based on earlier biblical teachings. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. For how can the Holy Spirit contradict himself? Jesus clearly states in John chapter 10, verse 35, Scripture cannot be broken. There is unity in the diversity of times, places, and inspired writers who wrote as the same Holy Spirit guided them. With this principle, difficult or obscure passages must be interpreted from the basis of less obscure passages. As we come together, as you study the Word of God, Study everything that is to be said about a topic within the Word of God. Don't leave anything out. We have concordances for that reason. Don't study a subject and use different subjects that are unrelated. Otherwise, there will be confusion and misinterpretation, misapplication. By viewing all passages on the same subject from every side, the interpreter can expect to arrive with the guidance of the same Holy Spirit at the biblical meaning. One should not be able to take all passages on a particular, one should be able to take all passages on a particular subject from different times and different locations and different writers and varied circumstances because all of Scripture is inspired by God. By viewing all passages on the same, from every side, we can arrive at truth. On the road to Emmaus, after the huge crisis that the disciples faced, Jesus applied this principle of Scripture as its own interpreter. Luke 24, 27 tells us, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice that Jesus, again, at this moment of the great crisis for the future of the church, expounds, explains, and describes how the Scripture, from the beginning to the end, reflected him and his mission and message. Jesus again relies on the authority of Scripture as he describes to those disciples what really his message and mission was. Number three, the plain meaning of Scripture. There's always a temptation to try to find something innovative. We're living in the last days and the Scriptures have been interpreted for a long time. This church has been in existence for over 150 years. And sometimes it seems to me that there are people in our church that are getting tired 
of the same old message and they want something innovative and new. But brothers and sisters, this is not the time for innovation. This is the time to stand with the Bible and the Bible only. There is always a temptation to think of something that no one else has thought of before. But the study of Scripture is not focused on us. It is focused on God and His will. For that reason, it is always safest to go with the plain meaning or the most obvious meaning of the passage. To argue for a translation of a word based on some obscure thing that no other translation of the Bible seems to support is to cause confusion among each other as we read our Bibles together. In Selected Messages, Volume 2, verse 52, Ellen White has these words. Those who do not accept the Word of God, just as it reads, will be snared in his trap. And the context tells us that Satan's trap. When we read the Bible, we look not for the complex, but we look for the plain meaning of Scripture that is the same time simple and profound. Jesus was simple in his words to the common people that he reached out to. Children should be able to read the Bible and understand the gospel. In fact, sometimes they surprise us with their insights. Young people here at GYC, you should be able to open the Word of God and come up with the teachings of what Christ has inspired through the Old and New Testaments and find new meaning to life. Number three, the sufficiency of Scripture. There's a subtle teaching today that presupposes that we move beyond the Bible in order to be relevant to our modern experience or culture. This view argues, and it is found in Christianity without, and it is found sometimes even within our movement the view argues that the Holy Spirit continues to guide the church to make decisions or take positions that go beyond the Bible and may even contradict the Bible. This is called in some circles progressive revelation. And by other scholars who have come up with newer terminology today, a trajectory hermeneutic, a trajectory that is hinted at by the writers of the Bible but that is really coming into fruition today in the church. It holds that the Christ and the Bible writers were bound by circumstances and time and could not go beyond the confines of their culture. Since the Holy Spirit is at work today, they argue, the Holy Spirit continues to guide the church. And that is true. But the model of church authority over scripture authority is not a Protestant principle, it's a Roman Catholic principle. Jesus said in John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will speak on his own authority. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Like Christ who submitted himself to the word of God, the Holy Spirit will not move beyond this authority. Ellen White has this powerful counsel in great controversy Roman numeral page 9. The Spirit was not given, nor can it ever be bestowed to supersede the Bible. For the Scriptures explicitly state that the Word of God is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Today, we must continue to hold to the concept of the sufficiency of Scripture. Isaiah 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And by the word, the word law there, Torah, is an all-encompassing word that refers to the teaching of Scripture. Everything must be tested by the word of God. This means that the Bible is sufficient and authoritative in all matters. It is foundational for every discipline, whether biology, psychology, anthropology, and yes, even theology. To move beyond Scripture is to move beyond the example of Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. The final principle of 
Protestant interpretation, and we could list some others as well. We don't have time today. Is the prophetic principle of historicism. The reformers were great students of prophecy. And the historicist method of interpretation was the great basis of their study and writing. Historicism is the method of prophetic interpretation practiced by the prophets of the Bible. Prophecy is fulfilled over the course of history and is inextricably bound with history. Thus, when we study the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 of this great image that Nebuchadnezzar dreams about, and we see Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the breakup of Rome into the countries of Europe, and down to the very end of time when the rock cut out without hands comes down and crushes and establishes a kingdom that will last forever. As he looks down through the purview of history, we see that the sequence of these empires are exactly as described in the Bible. Daniel 7, 8, and 9 further expand on certain aspects of this history. The book of Revelation continues that. And Ellen White tells us these two books need to be studied today as never before. We, found, we find internal fulfillment in Scripture. As Assyria and Babylon is predicted by the prophets to destroy Israel and Judah respectively, and we see its fulfillment within Scripture itself. As an archaeologist, I have excavated many sites in Israel, and I have seen the destruction levels of these predictions that are made in Scripture. This summer at the site of Lachish, we excavated the Assyrian destruction of Sennacherib, and we, destroy, we also excavated the Babylonian destruction by Nebuchadnezzar just before he went into Jerusalem to destroy the temple. These things, these prophetic points today have the tendency to become spiritualized and idealized in modern interpretation. Or there's a temptation in our circles today to have many multiple fulfillments for some of these prophecies. We need to be careful, careful that in the search for innovation and acceptance in the scholarly world around us, we don't lose sight of the prophetic historicist interpretation of prophecy that has made and galvanized the Seventh-day Adventist church to be what it is today. But with the rise of modernism and postmodernism, the Bible as the basis for history and prophecy has come under increasing attack. The resulting tenets of historical criticism places man's autonomous reason, man's autonomous experience, and philosophical naturalism above the script of the Bible. A secular scientific worldview has become the main way in which Scripture is interpreted at universities and seminaries across this country outside of our church. And yes, it is even impacting our church as well. But what does it do for the definition of Jesus and His mission and message? What would we know about Jesus outside of the Bible? The Bible defines who Jesus is. The Bible defines what He did if you say there is no literal six-day creation at the beginning, what do you do with John 1, 1 through 3, which states, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through Him. Ephesians 3, 9 says, God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, God has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, by whom also He made the worlds. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are in earth. All things were created by Him, and by Him all things consist. By rejecting the biblical view of creation, you change the Bible's definition of who Jesus is. If you conclude that Isaiah was not a prophet who had the power through the Holy Spirit to foretell the future through the prophetic gift, then what do you do with the account of Jesus who stands up to read Isaiah in his home synagogue in Nazareth 
The people have seen this boy growing up in their midst and suddenly Jesus is reading to them from the Word of God and saying, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. They knew what he was talking about. They tried to kill him afterwards. If David did not exist, and this is a real issue today that I'm involved with personally, there are scholars today who said David and Solomon are not historical figures at all. Well, how does that work then with Jerusalem, which is the oldest capital in the world going back 3,000 years? Who established Jerusalem? What do you do with the Psalms that are still read as liturgy in synagogues and in churches around the world? What do you do with the defeat of the Philistines? And what do you do with Solomon and the building of the great temple because there would be no Solomon if there was no David. Most importantly, what do you do with David as the progenitor of the Messiah, for it is through the line of David that Jesus is promised? What do you do with the last chapter of Revelation when Jesus himself proclaims, I am the son of David? History and prophecy are inextricably bound together. And both of those elements that have made us who we are, are under increasing attack in the world today. By removing history, the power of the Bible becomes neutralized. The Word of God has become the words of men. By removing the God who acts in history through His Son, Jesus Christ, we destroy not only the prophetic word, but we remove the historical reality of who Jesus is. The resulting relativism of postmodernism, tolerance for all ideas and cultures, and the loss of a compass of morals has left society without any direction at all. Today's mantra, the goal is ultimate freedom, but it is Jesus who declares ultimate freedom through belief in Him. As an anthropologist, I was trained here at the University of Arizona in Tucson. We studied the life ways, the beliefs, and the practices of different people groups. It was drilled into us that there is no privileged culture or society. Cultural relativism meant that we must come together and accept one another's ideas as equally valid and true, even though they might be diametrically opposed. Societies that greeted people were considered as equally valid as societies that ate people. In fact, the work of missionaries was of particular annoyance in the field of anthropology. Comments like this are common. Missionaries have no right to go in and try to change people's life ways. We must appreciate these groups and study them and leave them as they are. But that is not what Jesus did. He did not come into this world to study it and leave us as we are. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And no matter what culture you belong to, no matter what race you belong to, no, no, no matter what language you speak, Jesus came and died for you. Amen. Jesus was rather exclusive when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. The problem with cultural tolerance is that it places culture above the Bible and the law of God. Today, if we label something as culture, it is almost reverenced. Art is culture, and the museums have lines of people trying to get into them when the churches in our Western world stand empty. Culture has the norm for determining the life of people and also our values, but this begs the question, which culture of the world's 6,500 language groups and cultures, which culture takes precedence? Is it my culture? Is it your culture? Is it a hybrid culture? Are our modern cultures today really superior to the cultures of the past? I study the cultures of the past and I have to differ. I don't think so. Have we been evolving into superhumans? Why? Why do we think that? Because we have technology today? The Middle Ages were known as the Dark Ages because the Word of God was kept hidden from the people. But today, in the wake of the fastest technologies ever invented in human history, and with data overload, our world has been swept again into a deepening darkness. You see, we have access to the Bible as never before. We can download them on our Kindles and on our phones. 
We can download them as apps. We have them in every room of our house. We even have them in our hotel rooms here at GYC. Yet with all of this comes such monumental distraction. Daniel predicted that in the last days men will run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. The exponential increase in knowledge is so frenetic that none of us can keep up with it and we are desperately trying every day to keep up with the flood of emails and texts and everything else. Last month I was in New York City at the Metropolitan Museum, this country's finest museum. And what did I see on display along with mummies, an Egyptian temple, a statue of Hadrian, the Roman Emperor, and yes, even an inscription that mentions David for the first time outside of history. What did I see there? I saw the first video game, Atari Pac-Man, invented in 1978. It was the first video game I remember playing. I don't play video games anymore, by the way. There's no time for that. Now, is it, now this video game is in an archaeological museum. Does that tell you how fast our culture is changing? I want to ask you a question today, and it's a question that I ask myself because it is endemic for all of us. It affects all of us. If we spend so many hours texting, tweeting, emailing, Facebooking, checking likes, Instagramming, connected 24-7, are we really more connected today than we've been in the past? Is it possible that we spend less time on those things that matter most? Is the Bible still interesting for us today? Is it still relevant for us today? Are we spending enough time in the Word of God? Are we spending enough time with family? Are we spending enough time on those things that matter most, the church? Are we working for the church? Could it be that we are under the impression that we are connected, but in reality we are less connected with each other and with God than ever before in history? Sociologists are worried. Neurologists are writing books. I have one at home entitled The New Brain. Studies have been published that show us that these technologies in the media are rewiring our brains, physically altering our neural pathways, shrinking the frontal lobe where spiritual decisions and moral decisions are made. We have become numb to human suffering, numb to spiritual realities, closed within an increasing obsession with ourselves. But we think our culture is advanced because we have technologies. The Bible gives us a very different picture. The Bible tells us that when humanity was created at the beginning, it was created perfect and we were created in the image of God. The Bible tells us that humanity after the fall and the entrance of sin has been degenerating physically and mentally ever since. What does this imply about us today? Should we at the end of Earth's history begin changing the teaching of God's Word, relativizing God's Word, based on the increasing dysfunction in modern culture? The grass withers, the flower fades, says Isaiah, but the Word of our God stands forever. Amen. Culture changes. Culture is fluid. Culture is on shifting sand. Look at the reversal in government legislation on marriage in this country alone in the last 10 years. What does this apply, imply for us today? What are we thinking about? Is it coincidence that marriage and homosexuality and gender issues are so contested today? Is it coincidence that evolutionary theory has even become mainstream in major Protestant churches? Is it coincidence that the Seventh-day Sabbath has been largely abandoned by 98% of Christianity? Are, or are these signs predicted in the prophetic Word of God? Revelation 14, 6 through 7 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people. The gospel is a universal gospel. It is not based on culture. It is above culture. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. 
and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of living water. This is a direct quotation from the fourth commandment, by the way. It points back to creation. My friends, it is the very fabric of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage between a man and a woman is the basis of family and culture. Seventh-day communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is our fabric of our relationship with Him and our belief that Jesus Christ is the Creator and will recreate us when He comes again in the clouds of glory. The three angels' messages are more relevant today than they have ever been in earth's history. We come to the last crisis in the life of Christ. The powerful prayer of Jesus in John 17, 1 through 19. I can't read it all today, but I'm going to read some of it. Just before he endured the cross, Jesus prayed this prayer for his disciples because he knew what they would be going through. And I believe that prayer is still as valid for our, us today as disciples of Jesus as they were for the disciples in the first century. Verse 1, John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified in your truth. Commenting specifically on this prayer, Ellen White has these words in historical sketches, 197. It is the duty of everyone to search the Scriptures for himself. We cannot accept the assertions of men as infallible. To those who oppose and denounce our faith, we say, show us from the Bible that we are in error. God's word is to judge us in the last day. And we want to know what saith the scripture. We are regarded with jealousy and bitterness because we will not accept as evidence the assertions of men and the testimony of the fathers. But we cannot purchase peace and unity by sacrificing the truth. The conflict may be long and painful, but at any cost, we must hold fast the Word of God, the Bible and the Bible only, must be our watchword. Christ has given us His Word. What has built Christ's church over the centuries, what has sustained God's church, what has preserved God's church is the living Word of God. As we enter, if we enter into a different method of interpreting the Bible, that introduces human reason, human experience, and culture as the norm above Scripture, we will no longer be united. We will have theological and cultural pluralism, and the result will be disunity, but most importantly, we will be sacrificing the truth. That summer, after Pan Am Flight 103, I needed to earn some money. I was a college student after all. And I decided to work in Switzerland where I heard you could make three times as much money as working construction back home. So I went to the capital of Switzerland, Bern, and got a job in one of the most prestigious five-star hotels next to Parliament. 
I was looking forward to it because my friends were going to be there, but my friends deserted me. They went to this youth congress. Praise the Lord for youth congresses. They went to a youth congress in Barcelona and it left me alone in a strange city in a strange place with a new job. I knew no one. And all that year, those questions had been resurfacing and resurfacing and resurfacing. And I had put them aside and put them aside. Many of my friends who had grown up in the church were facing a crisis of faith and they raised questions and they asked me those questions. After all, I was a theology student, but I didn't have any answers. But most importantly and deep in my heart was that lingering question. Why was I not on Pan Am Flight 103? What did God want for me in this new lease on life? And so during those two weeks, I opened the Word of God. I studied as I had never studied the Word before. There was an intensity, there was a deep longing, a need to know I needed to know answers to those questions. It had come to a point where I could no longer put it off. You know, I want to say something here today that is extremely important. It is not wrong to ask questions. It is not wrong. God has put in us this desire to know, this curiosity, this, this longing to know Him. And if we do not ask questions, if we do not wrestle with God, God will not display Himself in the same way that He can when we wrestle with Him. It's not time, it's not wrong to search. But my friends, we live in a society today where it's very popular to search and to search and to search and to search and to say, I am searching. But in this culture, it is very unpopular to ever find an answer. And I would submit to you today that the answer is in the Word of God. As I studied the Word of God, I devoured the New Testament, and then I picked up a little red book that one of my friends had left with me. It was entitled, The Great Controversy. Last year at GYC, we handed out thousands of great controversies in the community and, into, and to attendees. And I hope that some of you took time, as I did this year, to reread that book again. I read it for the first time there in that dorm room in Bern, Switzerland at the University of Bern, and I could not put it down. I, I, I began to read it from cover to cover. It was incredible because that year I had spent, I had put 45,000 kilometers on my car. I had traveled all over Europe. Europe is not a large place, but 45,000 kilometers in one year. I had traveled all over Europe, multiple trips to various places. I had studied less German than I was supposed to, but I had traveled well. <laughs> I had sat in the church where John Huss preached the message of Refor Reformation in Prague. I had stood in the room in, where Luther translated the New Testament into the German vernacular. I had gazed out the window of the palace where a Protestant threw out a Catholic and started the Thirty Years' War. I was reading through history that prophetically came alive. For the first time in my adult life, I understood that I was part of a legacy of men and women who had given up their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the living Word of God. I realized that I was part of a much larger conflict, a cosmic conflict, a conflict which centered on this planet and on the character and justice of God. And friends, it no longer mattered that I was being trained to be a third-generation Seventh-day Adventist minister because I realized in those weeks and months as I studied that there is no such thing as a third-generation Seventh-day Adventist minister. All of us must become first-generation Seventh-day Adventist Christians. You know what the most exciting thing was, the most thrilling experience of all of this? As I studied, my questions were answered. Those questions, those precious answers, those precious answers that came in the early hours of the morning and the 
late hours of the night. Every moment I, I stopped driving my car to work, I took public transportation so I could read my Bible and the spirit of prophecy on the bus. Every break I had at the hotel, I was down in the bowels of the hotel studying. Every moment I could get, I was devouring God's word and trying to understand. And you know what? The answers to those questions, praise the Lord, were the answers that I had received growing up in this great and wonderful movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But now for the first time, they were not the answers that my parents had given me or that my teachers had given me or my wonderful youth pastors had given me. No, they were questions that had been answered by the living Word of God that had become the Word of God for me. They were my answers. Jesus Christ became real and tangible in my life. I fell in love that summer with Jesus. Every one of us here today needs to have that kind of experience. For Jacob, it was an all-night wrestling match with the Almighty. For Isaiah, it was the touch of coal upon his lips as he saw the Lord high and lifted up. For Saul, it was a blinding light on the Damascus road. For me, when I was 20 years of age, it was Pan Am Flight 103. What will it be for you, my friend, today? In Great Controversy, page 595, in that powerful chapter where Ellen White writes about Scripture being our only safeguard in the end times in which we live, she says this, but God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. We need reformation. We need revival today. It's the Bible that will bring that. And prayer and supplication. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority. Not one of, nor all of these, should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. If there is no plain, thus saith the Lord, friends, let's not go there. Let's be careful. That night, that darkening afternoon, as Christ was suspended between heaven and earth on the cross. His disciples had fled, most of them. He was all alone. He felt alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, he was not alone. In that darkness, there was one penetrating light that gave the Savior hope and encouragement that all had not been lost. On either side of him were two men hanging on crosses as well. One had scorned and rejected the Savior. But the other one had seen how Jesus reacted to the cross how Jesus calmly accepted the penalty of something that he did not do. And that man was moved and asked God whether he might not see him in his kingdom. Those three crosses represent for us something very important today. Christ stands at the center. He divides history forevermore. We still reckon history as B.C. and A.D. Christ is there at the center. But there is only one question today, one question. Do you accept Jesus as revealed in his word as the way, the truth, and the life? Do you remain faithful to Scripture as he 
remained faithful to Scripture to fulfill all the things that had been said of him so that you and I might have life. There were no 50 decisions that could have been made. There were no grays that day in the darkness. There was a simple decision. Will you remember me in your kingdom? Will you submit to Jesus Christ and to his word? That question is still for us today. And I want you to ask, I want to ask you, if you want to be one of those men and women who will stand by the Bible and the Bible only as we face the greatest crisis this earth has ever faced. We don't know what the future holds, but it will be the greatest crisis. And it's happening. It's already happening today. If you want to be one of those people, I want to invite you to stand. Stand on the living word of God that will remain forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the living word of God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate that came to reveal God's truth in human form. He knows what we are going through. He experienced the temptations. He experienced all that we experience today. There's nothing that he went through, nothing more that we can go through that he did not go through. So today, Christ... In the name of Christ, we ask that we would remain faithful, faithful to the promises of your word. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.